Morning. Uh, the youth are dismissed to, uh, with Pastor Tom to the barn if they'd like to go today. Normally we keep them in for Lord's Supper, but we kept them in last week. So teenagers, you can head out with Pastor Tom. As the ushers pass out uh, today's handout, I, I uh, wanted to make mention of a few things. Uh, number one, we had uh, some other incidents this week, but the Lord's been, uh, been uh, with us all the way. Uh, the first was uh, Shannon Cortez, who's not here today. She was hospitalized. Uh, Renee and Shannon, you know, and their two children, uh, they're not here today, but Shannon was hospitalized with chest pain. Um, she went up to uh, Kaiser and Irvine to the ER, and they couldn't find anything. But nevertheless, she is home now resting, and uh, our prayers are with them, and hopefully they can determine what the cause of that was. Perhaps uh, stress, anxiety, they're thinking, but uh, all tests showed up regular, so they're a little perplexed. Pray for the Cortez family. Uh, of course, we have many others who are sick and ill, uh, my own family included. My, my daughter woke, had a great fever last night, 104.5. We were this close to going to the hospital almost, um, but thankfully the Lord took it away and she's feeling better now. And then finally, uh, and really the most uh, weighty of all announcements, uh, I am getting tired of being the bearer of, of tough news, uh, but we have some more tough news. Uh, Charlotte Palmer, who's not here today, uh, has been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer and she has... Uh, two to four months to live. Um, her, I spoke with her daughter last night on the phone. Her daughter said, uh, my mother's never smoked a day in her life, and yet she has lung cancer. And uh, she said uh, that Charlotte's spirits are very high. She is positive, hopeful. Um, she has relayed to me and to you, our, the church family, that she is looking forward to heaven she has lived a very long life, and I know many of her friends, Alan Kitt, Stu and Elsie, many of you know her well, uh, but Charlotte is, uh, barring a miracle of the Lord, is uh, coming down to the, the final stages of her life, two to four months, lung cancer. So our prayers are with Charlotte and her family. I, uh, I hope and pray that she can return to coast uh, for at least a Sunday or two. Um, what kept her out last week was pneumonia, and that's how they diagnosed the lung cancer. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we have, uh, we have experienced a lot in the last month, or two, or three, as a church family, Lord. It seems that every, every time we gather, Lord, there's something new that, uh, that has happened, um, tragedy all around us, Lord, and, and yet we just lift up our hands, Lord, and we surrender to you, we surrender our lives to you, and we lay them at your feet, how frail and how fragile this life is, it's like a vapor, in an instant it's gone. So God, as we watch and witness the, the tragedy and the frailty of life around us, the sickness and the hardship and the trials, let us be resolute in you, hopeful in you, knowing that these trials produce patience, which produces character, which ends in hope. I thank you, God, for 
uh, great uh, women of the faith like Charlotte, whose life coming to an end and yet she's hopeful. She's optimistic because she has you, Jesus. Oh Lord, that our lives would be that hopeful, that optimistic in the face of great tragedy. So God, keep our eyes on you. Keep our eyes on the frailty of life and on how much we need to make it count right here, right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As uh, Doug prayed, we've been in some heavy stuff here at Coast Bible Church. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke, and in the latter stages of chapter 12 and in throughout chapter 13, we have experienced a lot of difficult portions of the Word when it comes to the issue of judgment. Judgment. Judgment is not something that uh, uh, many Christians like to think about, like to talk about, but nevertheless, judgment is riddled throughout Scripture, and it requires our attention as well. We've been talking about the judgment of unbelievers. We've been talking about the judgment of believers and what those uh, various judgments look like. And I've had some really good conversations with many of you in the last few weeks. I've uh, really been edified by them. I've been challenged by them. Uh, together we're all looking at the Word and we're trying to uh, make sense of it and to ask the Spirit to guide our, our, our eyes and our minds as we read it. Um, but I've had some questions rise up from many of you regarding the judgment of believers, what we call the, the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. And so today, I wanted to do something a little, a little different. We want to take a, a small sidetrack from the Gospel of Luke and just focus specifically today on the topic of the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. And I just have listed here 11 questions today. In fact, I have about a list of 10 more that I'd like to cover, and I may cover in a couple of weeks. Pastor Tom's going to preach next week in the Gospel of Luke. But in two weeks, we may revisit this and do a little part two, because I've got some more questions I'd like to pose. And also, I'd like to see if any of you have additional questions as you go through this study uh, with me today. So the title today is a simple one. The Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. And I want to answer a little bit more classroom style, if we could, if we, as we go through the word. What, what is it about the Bema Seat Judgment? What are the various aspects of it? What is its nature? What is its purpose? Who is it for? Who's the judge? All of it. And let's see if this is a time in which we learn a little bit more about what it means to stand before Christ when this life is over. So again, this is question style. I want to start off with question number one on your outline. And please take notes today. This is a great day to take notes. Get a Bible because we're going to be flipping through various scriptures. The first question is, what is the Bema? What is the Bema? Well, Bema there is actually uh, the Greek uh, uh, from the Greek word. It's uh, translated uh, the same in English as it is in Greek, although there's different forms of it in Greek, of course. But Bema simply means a step. Literally, a step, like this step right here. One step. Bema means a, a raised platform. It means a raised area. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. It's used to describe the judicial platform upon which various Roman rulers and judges would give their decrees. If you look in the Gospels, you'll see instances where the Greek word bima is used to describe the judgment seat of Pilate when Jesus stands before him. 
It is also used to describe the judgment seat of Herod in Acts 12, of Gallio in Acts 18, of Festus in Acts 25. So in many instances in the New Testament, you see Bema being used to refer to the raised platform or the stepped-up platform of an earthly ruler from which they make decrees, make judgments. There are two instances, however, of the 12 instances of Bema that move away from the earthly side of judgment into the heavenly side of judgment. In two of the 12 instances of the word Bema, Paul uses this word to describe the final judgment of Christ. Romans 14.10 comes to mind. You can turn there if you would like to. I'll read it, uh, I'll read it for us here. For Romans 14, verse 10, in which Paul says, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the Bema seat of Christ, before the judgment seat of Christ. And then flipping over a second verse that refers to a heavenly judgment seat rather than an earthly judgment seat, a very well-known passage, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, Paul writes again, For we must all appear before the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I trust we are well known in your consciences. So there we have two instances in which we leave the earthly realm and we enter the heavenly realm. We leave earthly bemas and we go to a heavenly bema where Christ is. It's interesting as you look at that 2 Corinthians 5.10 passage in your Bibles, the words we must all appear, the word appear there in Greek is in the passive. It would be maybe better translated, we will all be made visible before the judgment seat of Christ. God will make us visible. God will lay us bare. He will lay us bare before him at the Bema Seat judgment. A second question following what is the Bema, who will be the judge? Well, in accordance with Romans 14.10 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, the previous two verses we've just read, the, that answer is rather obvious. It's rather straightforward. Jesus Christ is going to be the judge. Many of us have uh, 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 this mind that, uh, that, that thinks the Father is the one who judges and, and Jesus is all love, grace, and mercy. Not so in the New Testament. In fact, the Father, as the, the Gospel of John uh, says, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Jesus Christ is going to be your judge, my judge, when this life is over. A third question that often perks up. Most of you know the answer to this, but some of you may not. Is the Bema the same as the great white throne judgment? Is the Bema the same as the great white throne judgment? If you have a Bible, it's easy to find. Turn to the end of it in Re at Revelation chapter 20, and you'll come upon the great white throne judgment. Chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. We're asking the question, is the Bema seat judgment of Christ in heaven, the same as the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Well, let's read chapter 20, verse 11, and uh, see what we see. 
It says in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne. This is the Apostle John having a vision of, uh, of heaven. And then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no more place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, that is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. It should be relatively self-evident, just a casual reading of, of Revelation 20, that the great white throne judgment and the multitudes that are gathered there are quite a different crowd than the crowd at the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. These are two separate judgments, folks. And those that conflate them really miss so many texts in the New Testament that speak specifically of only Christians being present at the Bema Seat Judgment of Christ, whereas only unbelievers are going to be present at the Great White Throne Judgment. These are two separate judgments. A fourth question, one that maybe many of us are not very aware of. When will the Bema take place? When will the Bema take place? Matthew 16, verse 47 gives, uh, verse 27 rather, gives us a little bit of a hint along with a portion in Luke that we read very recently. Matthew 16, verse 47 in, in the gospel, Jesus says this. He says, for the son of man will come in the glory of his father with his angels and then he will reward each according to his works. So the Son of Man will come, come again, speaking of the second coming. The Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Let's get a little bit more definitive. Look over at Luke chapter 14, verse 14, which we read recently. Luke 14, verse 14. We read it last week, as a matter of fact. He says, he's speaking of uh, having a feast. Look at verse 13, and he says, When you give a feast... Invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But notice when the repayment happens. For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Folks, we don't know precisely. Scripture doesn't give us a date and time, but it does give us generalities. It tells us that it's going to be after this and before this. And the after part, right here, you can write this on your outline, the Bema Seat judgment will take place sometime after the, resur- the rapture and the resurrection. Write down the word after. Sometime after the rapture and the resurrection. Of course, the rapture and the resurrection take place simultaneously. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, we uh, see the, the catching up of the church into the air. We see the dead in Christ being raised. And so we have an event there, the rapture, the resurrection, at which point the Bema Seat judgment can take place.
Now, what about where, what is the last point at which the Bema Seat judgment can take place? Take a look at Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. Revelation chapter 19, verse 8. In Revelation 19, verse 8, again, this is, uh, this is the Apostle John having a vision of heaven. And he's seeing now the church. He's seeing the church which has been raised, has been raptured. The saints have been resurrected. They are with Christ. But notice how he describes the saints. And he says this in chapter 19, verse 8. And to her it was granted, the church to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Something has happened to the appearance of the saints in Revelation 19, verse 8. Something distinctive has happened to them. They've been arrayed in white. They've been, they've been arrayed in the righteous acts of the saints, the acts that God has deemed righteous in their earthly lives. Jesus has judged them. He's looked upon them. And what they are arrayed in now is those final works that are judged righteous before God. They're, the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And so with these kinds of verses, and there are many others to choose from, we can make a generality and say that the Bema Seat judgment is sometime after the resurrection and the rapture and sometime before the millennial kingdom, which Re- Revelation 19 is just before the beginning of the millennial kingdom. It seems reasonable to suppose that the Bema Seat judgment will, of course, then happen during the tribulation period, perhaps, on earth, or perhaps just prior to it, as there may be a gap between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation. Sometime, and again, we're speaking of earthly time here, but uh, sometime in heaven's, uh, on heaven's watch, it will happen in these parameters, within these parameters. Another question, and this is an important one, what is the purpose of the Bema? What is the purpose of the Bema? Here is where we come to a, a critically important text, and please turn there. First Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, one we read often at Coast Bible Church, one that I think cannot be read often enough because it speaks of our greatest day. And let, let me reiterate that. It speaks of our greatest day. You think of your greatest day, right? You think of your maybe your wedding day. You think of uh, the birth of a child or a grandchild. You think of uh, maybe your graduation from a prestigious uh, university that you worked so hard to receive this degree. Think of your greatest day on earth. Nothing will top the day when you stand before Jesus Christ and receive from him recompense, reward for your earthly life. This Bema Seat Day for you and for me, will be one of our greatest days. I would argue it will be the greatest day, the most important day in our entire lives. Take a look at this day in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. Paul's speaking about preparation for that, this day, and he says in verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the foundation. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work 
will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on the foundation of Christ endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3 is where Paul lays out beautifully the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. Two things I want to say about this. Number one, beginning with the word E there, the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is evaluation. Evaluation. You and I will be evaluated. Evaluation. We will stand before the boss, not the earthly boss, the real boss, and he will evaluate you and evaluate me. He will look at what we've done. Verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hair, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Folks, that is evaluation. That is examination of your life, of your earthly work. A second purpose of the Bema Seat Judgment and this is, of course, a very important one as well. From evaluation, we get to the second one, reward. Reward. Verse 14, if anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. That is the purpose of the Bema Seat, to go from evaluation of our life's work to Jesus Christ giving you and me rewards. What are those rewards? That's a question I want to answer a little bit later. We want to, we, we want to get to those questions. But we have, we go from evaluation to reward. And that is the purpose of Bema. And if our work is burned, he will suffer loss. There's potential of a loss of reward. But he himself will be saved. Yet so is through fire. I have to wonder, will we all suffer loss? Will there be many of us who face um, the fires as spoken of in chapter 3, verse 15? Do you anticipate that your work is going to be burned? Do you think the majority of it will hold up to Christ's scrutiny? These are difficult questions to consider. I wonder, what is Jesus' criteria for evaluation? And that's the subject of the next question. What is he looking for? Okay, if, if I'm going to face... The Lord on the last day, I better know what he's looking for. If this is my most important day, if this is the greatest day of my life, the most important day of my life, you would think that I would want to know how to please the boss. What is, question six, Jesus' criteria for evaluation? What is he looking for? Many things could be said here. And I've, we, we could list also many, many scriptures. I'm not going to so much give the biblical support as I am going to just give a, rattle off six answers that I think are very important. If you want to ask me for references, I, we could provide, provide you with many. The first thing I might say is that Jesus' criteria for evaluation is number one, spirit-led work. Spirit 
led work? Are you serving God in the spirit? Or are you serving in your own flesh? Are you walking with the spirit? Or are you gratifying the desires of the flesh? Has your earthly life been spirit-led? Or has it been led by your own ability? Spirit-led work is what Jesus is looking for. He's looking to see if we've been striving with his spirit that he's put in us. A second thing that he's looking for, pure motives and desires, integrity, pure motives and desires. When you did serve, was it kicking and screaming and, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this, Lord. I don't want to go. I don't want to do this. I'm tired of this. I'm grumpy. I, I serve begrudgingly. Did you have pure motives? Did you have pure desire? Was it spirit-led desire? Or when you served him, when you worked on his behalf for the cause of Christ, were you constantly grumbling, complaining, thinking of the, the better things that you could have been doing? A third uh, letter C there on your outline. What about the quality of the work performed? How, what was the, its quality? How well did you do? You know, when you, when you taught a Bible study in children's church, when you came here for Awana, when you, when you brought a meal to someone who was sick, when you went to visit them, when you ministered in the name of Christ, did you give your best effort? Or did you phone it in? We know what it means to phone it in. Sometimes we do that at work. Sometimes we do that with ch- chores around the house. We cut corners. We find ways to get around it. How is the quality of your work for the Lord? Fourth, I want to say this, and this is an important one, capability. I, 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 you can put a little dash there. Our use of spiritual gifts and resources that are at our disposal. What, what kind of capability did you have? What spiritual gifts, what resources did you have at your disposal? What has God given you, made you capable of, given you the ability to do, and how well did you use those resources, those gifts? Letter E, faithfulness. Faithfulness and endurance through trial. Sometimes those pure motives are hard to come by. Sometimes there's a little bit of begrudging in our service. But perhaps also the Lord, while our motives may not have always been pure, maybe he's still looking for faithfulness. In fact, we know he's looking for faithfulness. Steadiness, obedience, commitment to the work of the Lord. Sometimes you don't feel like it, but yet you were the type of person who said, I'm still going forward. I'm still going to serve. I'm still going to give. I'm still going to devote myself to this, even though it's hard. Faithfulness through trial, through difficulty, through tragedy, through sickness. And sixth and finally, I might add, quiet work done in secret. Quiet work done in secret. I think of Matthew 6. When you do your charitable deed, Jesus says, don't sound the trumpet before, before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be done in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward 
you openly. What you do in secret is not secret. Many of us, are, we, you know, we look for accolades. Uh, we, uh, we, we do something for the Lord or we do something in the church. We, we serve, we give our best effort, we work hard many years and we kind of come to the end of it and we go, hey, where's my, uh, where's my thank you card? Where's my gift card? Where, where's, where's the praise of the church for me, for what I've done? Why don't they bring me forward and recognize me for my effort, for my service? Bad motives. Bad motives. Let, let us remember that quiet work done in secret, that will probably earn the greatest reward. These are some things that Jesus is looking for. A seventh question. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15 mentions evaluation by fire. Will there be literal fire at the judgment seat of Christ, at the Bema? Some people uh, were, were asking me about this. Is, Pastor, are you saying that there's physically going to be fire at the Bema seat judgment of Christ? Uh, my answer is perhaps. Um, it could be that uh, Paul's speaking literally. I don't think he is. I think he's speaking metaphorically in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. I think he's speaking metaphorically uh, because of, uh, for a number of reasons. I think that fire is often used to describe God's holiness, God's, uh, God's righteousness, his justice. I see in Revelation, at the very end of Revelation, Jesus, his eyes, what are they referred to? As like a flame of fire. And when Jesus the judge stands before you on the bema, on the step, and he looks down at you, his eyes, like flames of fire, will pierce through everything you've done. All of your life's work, it will lay it bare. Just like the word of God will cut through, dividing joint and marrow, soul and spirit. It'll pierce us through. Jesus' eyes, his word, it will lay our work bare before him. Will there be literal fire? I, I don't know. I don't necessarily think so. But Jesus' glare will be enough. His eyes that judge and that see clearly the integrity of our life's work. Turning over your outline, here's where we're going to spend the most time today on question eight, because this is a difficult one. Second Corinthians, uh, Question 8, 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that Jesus will render judgment according to what he has done, according to what a person has done, whether good or bad. So the question is, will Jesus judge my sin at the Bema? Once again, 2 Corinthians 5.10, I'll read it in its entirety. Paul writes, for we must all, all, Appear. We must all be made visible before the judgment seat of Christ, that each person may receive the things done in the body, that is to say the things done in their earthly life in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Many people, uh, many, many people, read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, and they see the word bad there. According to what he has done, the, the, the works that he's done, whether good works 
or bad works. And then we, many people who read that pose the question in their minds or ask it out loud, does that mean Jesus at the Bema seat is going to judge me for my sin? Another way of asking it, are, are bad works sinful? Isn't this an evaluation of sin? Tough question. Many pastors and theologians will answer it differently. A few things must be noted about 2 Corinthians 5.10, in my opinion. Two things, actually. The first is grammatical, and the second is theological. Two things that we're going to note. The first is grammatical, the second is theological. First, grammatically speaking. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, the word used for bad, and depending on the Greek manuscript you use in your Bibles, there's two words that are actually used there among the manuscripts. The word used for bad, phaulos, or kakos in Greek, depending on the manuscript, has a range of definition. It can be defined as evil, wicked, vile. So it can be defined in very extreme terms, evil, wicked, vile, sinful, bad. Or, conversely, these words, particularly phalos, can be defined as good for nothing, worthless, unproductive. So you have a whole range there, a whole range of meaning that this word can encompass, both in the Greek New Testament and in the extant literature of that day. Context, of course, very much matters for how you define that word. Theologically speaking, that's the grammatical issue. Secondly, now we come to a theological consideration. So we haven't answered the question of how to define it yet. But that's where I think the theological um, element speaks volumes. Theologically speaking, what does the Bible teach about sin and the believer? I want you to all turn to Psalm 103, verse 8. Psalm 103, verse 8. Beautiful portion of God's word. A Psalm of David. Psalm 103, middle of your Bible, beginning in verse 8, continuing to verse 12. David, the psalmist, writes, Psalm 103, verse 8, he says, The Lord, the Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, that is, strive against us. He will not, uh, nor will he keep his anger forever toward us. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. Once again, Psalm 103. Take a look again at verse 10. He, that is God, has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor has he punished us according to our iniquities. For, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far 
has he removed our transgressions from us? Folks, God does not deal with you and with me according to our sins. That's what David is teaching here. He does not repay us. He does not recompense us. He does not remunerate us according to our iniquities. When he removes sin, he removes it as far as the east is from the west. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, God remembers sin no more. When he forgives it, he remembers it no more. How can he do this? How can he do this? How can David say this in Psalm 103? He can say this because David, looking forward, could see what would happen when Messiah, Jesus Christ, would come and die on the cross for the sins of the world. What is the Bible taught about Jesus? What is the Bible taught about the cross of Christ? Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 is one such summary. There are many summaries that we could point to. Colossians 2, verse 13. It says this about the accomplishment of Christ. And what he did for us. He says, And you, you and I, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with Christ, having forgotten, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross forgiven all of our trespasses, wiped out all of it, nailed it to the cross. Something has happened to sin because of Jesus. It has been satisfied. It has been paid for. It has been defeated in Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 2, and he himself, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Because sin has been defeated at the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus, a Christian can stand confidently knowing that he or she has been justified by faith, knowing that Jesus has paid for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. Knowing that you will never again be required to pay the wages of sin. And what is the wages of sin? Death. You want to talk about recompense. You want to talk about what the reward is for sin? Romans tells us what the recompense is for sin. The wages of sin is death. It's death. There's not another wage for it. There's not another payment for it. It's not, well, you just had a little bit of sin, therefore you, you kind of, you go in with some words. No. It's death. The recompense of sin is death. But Paul tells us there's no condemnation. There's no judgment for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. I want to mention a couple quotes here, and I think these are helpful in light of the scriptures we've just read. J. Hampton Keithley writes this. It's on your outline. The Bema, this is important. The Bema is not punitive. It is not 
to judge believers for sin of any kind, confessed or unconfessed. And here he quotes uh, another man by the name of Samuel Hoyt, another theologian, who says this, Scripture teaches that for the believer, God's justice has already been fully and forever satisfied at the cross in relation to the believer's sin. If God were to punish the believer judicially for his sins, the sins for which Christ has already rendered payment, then God would be requiring two payments for sin which erroneously disparages the all-sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. This is Keithley again. Christ paid the penalty for the believer's pre- and post-conversion sins. The believer will forfeit rewards, which he could have received, but he will not be punished in the judicial sense of paying for his sins. Rodmacher writes this, if God were to ever judge you for sins, once paid for by Jesus Christ, God's entire kingdom would fall apart. Sins paid for once cannot be paid for again. Christ paid it in full. From the cross, he shouted in triumph, it is finished. Circling back now to our question. 2 Corinthians 5.10, where this discussion began. We're asking the question, if we're recompensed, if Jesus renders judgment according to what we have done, whether good or bad, phalos or uh, phalos, uh, kakos in Greek, bad, does that mean Jesus is going to judge my sin at the bima? To those who answer that question, yes, and there are many that do, I would ask the simple follow-up question. How can Jesus judge our sins again if he's already paid for it in full on the cross? How does the reintroduction of our sin in heaven comport with numerous scriptures that suggest that God will not repay will not recompense, that he does not deal with us according to our sins. And in fact, when he forgives our sins, Jeremiah 31, 34, he remembers it no more. He remembers them no more. I have not heard very good answers to those questions to date, though I am willing to listen. So in response to the question, will Jesus judge my sin at the Bema? I say no. I say grammatically the word bad here should be, and we have a range of definition. Remember, the kakos or phalos in Greek, it can mean evil, bad, wicked, vile. Conversely, it can mean unproductive, worthless, good for nothing. It's my opinion that based on theological considerations of the Old and New Testaments that we have to interpret these words over here. We have to. We have to understand them in this vein of, of, of a definition that speaks of these bad works as being unproductive, good for nothing, lacking integrity, lacking sincerity, not vile, evil, wicked sins, but just nothingness, a lack of effort. Works done in theory in the name of Christ, but done with no heart, no spirit, 
Certainly not the Holy Spirit's help. I say no. Jesus will not be judging sins of Christians at the Bema. Such a translation preserves the integrity of the full atonement for sin that Jesus accomplished. It leaves sin in the past where Jesus has forever put it by his death and resurrection. In saying that sin will be brought up no more in heaven, we are not suggesting that sin is not a serious matter. We are not suggesting that. Quite the contrary, sin is a grave matter. It can inflict great damage and harm, even death upon our earthly life. Those of us who are entrenched in sin on earth will very likely not fare well at the Bema Seat Judgment. Not because Christ will judge you for your sin, but because your entrenched sin on earth will have entangled you and corrupted you and kept you from achieving your full potential for reward at the Bema. Sin is a big deal. A big deal on earth. Because it keeps us from our full potential in Christ. The kind of reward we could have received. But Jesus will not, I humbly submit, Jesus will not be dredging up our sins again. There will be no reason to. He's already paid it. He's paid it in full. What remains to be judged is not our sin, but the quality of our life's work. Was it good? Good quality, filled with the Spirit, sincere, productive, or was it bad? That is to say, accomplished in our own strength, filled with improper motive, sluggish in effort, lacking substance, nothingness. Number nine. Going to finish quickly now. Will my life be made public at the Bema? Oh, that's, that's the best question of all. That's the question everybody wants to know, Right? Will my life be made public at the Bema? Pastor, will, will it all be laid bare for everyone to see? Scripture is actually silent on this matter. But a few things come to mind. Number one, uh, how often have you had a job evaluation on earth that was made a public spectacle before all? Never? Probably never. Evaluations are, by their very nature, usually done in private. When I'm evaluated by the elders, uh, when they give me assessment, they don't come before you and say, and here are all Neil's faults. Uh, they do it in private. They do it with uh, the right audience in mind. I think that may have bearing on the judgment seat of Christ. It may not. Secondly, Jesus has no desire to humiliate believers. Let her be there. He has no desire to humiliate us. That's not who the Son of God is. That's not his nature. And if we fear humiliation or shame because of our lack of quality work, well, that's something that Jesus would very likely um, guard us from. Third, even if it were public, even if it were, let's suppose that it were, Let's say it was public in heaven. Whose opinion do you suppose you will value most in heaven? Do you think it will be the masses or do you think it will be Christ's? It'll be Jesus' opinion that you value most. And so your fear of shame or humiliation by being made a public spectacle, even if it is public, your desire will be for an audience of one and not for the masses. 
two more questions remain. Question 10. 1 Corinthians 3.15 mentions the potential for loss at the Bema. And 1 John 2.28 mentions shame. We haven't read that one. Uh, little children, um, let us abide in him. Uh, I'm summarizing here, 1 John 2.28. Let us abide in him that when Christ appears, that when he comes, we will have confidence and not be ashamed at his coming. So we have loss in 1 Corinthians 3.15. We have shame in 1 John 2.28. Will I really experience these things in heaven, Neil? I think to some degree the answer is yes. When the fire tests our life's work, when the gaze of Christ tests our life's work, some of it will burn. What other emotion could there be when that happens? When your life's work burns, when, when the work of your hands, something you've created, something you've put your effort into, and when it burns, there's loss, there's shame. Woodrow Kroll, a great Bible teacher from Through the Bible Radio, he posits the idea that there may even be reprimand for some at the judgment seat of Christ. You say reprimand. Yes, reprimand. He bases this on the parable of the talents and the parable of the minus. In those parables, there's commendation. Remember, there's commendation. There's accolades given to the faithful ones, the faithful stewards. And there is reprimand given to the unfaithful stewards. You can turn uh, in your Bibles to uh, Matthew uh, uh, 20 and also, I believe, 25. I, I may have mixed those up. But these parables, the parable of the talents, the parable of the minus, there is commendation for those who do well. There is reprimand for those who don't quite measure up. How much more so might there be at the Bema seat? It could just be the look of Christ that will bring some of us shame and loss on that day. Just as a parent can look at their child and without a word can communicate to their child their displeasure. So it could just be a look from Christ that would cause loss and shame. But it also very well could be Jesus' words spoken to you. Words of reprimand. And admonishment. The great pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer was once asked to comment on the, the Bema seat, and this is what he said to his friend Leonard Ravenhill. He said, We will hardly get our feet out of time and into eternity, then we'll bow our heads in shame and humiliation. We'll gaze on eternity and say to ourselves, Look at all the riches that there were in Jesus Christ, and I've come to the judgment seat almost a pauper. Almost a pauper. A poor man. You say, Pastor, that sounds awful. Loss, shame, Jesus' gaze of displeasure, reprimand? That sounds awful. That would make me cry. And I thought there were no tears in heaven, Pastor. I thought there were no more tears and no more sorrow in heaven. Well, actually, the Bible does not teach that there are no tears in heaven. The Bible teaches that Jesus will what? Wipe away every tear from our eyes in heaven. Take a look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Revelation 21, verse 4. You could also refer to Revelation 7, 17. In Revelation 21, verse 4, it says this, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Let me ask you a very simple question. If Jesus is wiping away tears in heaven, what exists in heaven? Tears. 
If Jesus is wiping away sorrow in heaven, what exists in heaven? Sorrow. When do the tears exist? When does the sorrow exist? I submit to you, it primarily exists at the Bema seat. It exists at the Bema seat. When some will stand before the judge and be ashamed and bow their head and cry. But we know that that shame, that loss, while real, do not minimize it, it is real, it will be finished. It will be wiped away. It will be wiped away by Jesus Christ himself. And I wonder, I wonder, if that comfort of God that's referred to in Revelation 7 and again in verse chapter 21, the wiping away of the tears, I wonder if that comfort of God occurs, of Christ, occurs at the very end of our personal evaluation before him. That would seem to be in keeping with Scripture in my mind. That Jesus would finish a gaze toward us, perhaps a reprimand toward us. That he would finish that moment when we sit in shame and loss, that he would finish it with an embrace, with comfort, with the wiping away of our tears, and with the reminder that all is not lost. That in fact, all is just beginning. And that heaven, the new heaven, and the new earth awaits all of us, regardless of reward, because of our faith in Christ. Finally, should we really focus on rewards? Isn't that kind of selfish? I get this all the time. I don't know why I get it. Jesus says himself, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, Matthew six nineteen through 20, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus, Paul, John, Peter, slew of prophets in the Old Testament, Moses himself, sought the reward, Hebrews 11 says. Reward is not selfish. Reward is something that Jesus and all of Scripture tells us to seek diligently after. Go for the gold. Go for the prize. It's not selfish. Because to get there, you've got to have a spirit-led life, pure motives, faithfulness, endurance. A closing thought. There were two friends. Closing story. There were two friends. One was a young, capable contractor. The other was an old, wealthy businessman. The young contractor... He had a growing family. He had a beautiful wife, two kids. The old businessman, he was a widower, and he only had a few years left. The old rich businessman asked his young contractor friend to build him a very large and beautiful home on a great piece of land. And his young friend agreed. But as the young contractor began his work, he thought to himself, you know, my friend is very old. He will die soon. He would be none the wiser if I built for him a home that 
will not stand the test of time. He won't be here to know it. So in the process of building the home, the young contractor cut corners. He used low-grade materials. He put in a half-hearted effort. When the home was finished, it looked great on the outside, but the contractor knew that this beautiful large home would be falling apart in less than a decade. Nevertheless, on the last day, the contractor handed the keys of his home, of the home, over to his old, wealthy friend. But to his surprise, after the old man unlocked the door of the home, he turned around and he tossed the keys right back at the contractor. And he said to him, I am old and gray. I have no need for a beautiful home such as this. I will die in a matter of years. So I've decided to give this home to you, to your wife, to your children, on one condition, that you live in this home for the rest of your lives, that you keep it in perpetuity for your children and for your grandchildren. You are building something, folks. You are building. You're building God's kingdom. You're building God's house. You're building on the foundation of Christ. You're using materials. I don't know what they are. The old businessman didn't know what they were. But you do. And I wonder what materials you're using. I wonder what effort you're putting in. I wonder if when you go before the judge on the last day, if he'll toss, as he tosses the key back at you and says, show me your life's work, I wonder of what quality it will be. Will it be a great reward that lasts or will it be tears, shame, and loss? Look to yourselves, John says, that we do not lose those things which we've worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are going to face you, Jesus, on the last day. It is a day to be feared, also a day to very much look forward to. A day, Lord, in which we as Christians, those of us who have trusted in Jesus, will stand before you, Lord, and we'll have it all laid bare. Oh God, help us to build well. Where we have been building in these last years and months with shoddy material, with half-hearted effort, oh Lord, rid that from us. Let us build well on a sure foundation led by your Spirit. We seek reward, God. We know it isn't selfish to seek it. You've told us to seek it. We seek reward. Let us seek your face. Let us honor you. Let us build well that we may be rewarded on the last day. In Jesus' name, amen.